The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. There's a definition. We're going to get into it. Don't I can see some of you getting a little anxious, like, hey, let's get into the passage here. We're Redemption Bible Church, right? Stop talking. Let's get in the Word. We're going to. But at its core, we need to define reconciliation, okay? Reconciliation, you could simply define it as this, the restoration of a relationship that was broken, Two people in relationship, two entities in relationship, and that has been broken. Reconciliation is that process when it is restored. The restoration of a relationship that was broken. Humanity's relationship with God was broken by what? Sin. You're right. It was broken by sin and nothing short of divine orchestration of a reconciliation between God and man could fix that. And so when we read Joseph's story, which we're about to get into, when we read it here in Genesis, there is so much more than just a messed up family and tragic events and big promotions. God, beloved God, is initiating reconciliation. And there is a beautiful picture here. We see it happening among the brothers, but it's pointing us upward to something much more beautiful. You ready to read it now? All right, let's get into it. Turn your attention to Genesis 43. I'm going to read it for us, so follow along in your copy of God's Word. Keep your pen handy in case you want to underline something, but I'm going to read it for us now. Genesis 43 says this, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we have not delayed, we would have Now return twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. Underline this next verse, this next phrase. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin and as for me if I am bereaved of my children I am bereaved so the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph when Joseph saw Benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon 
The man did as Joseph told them and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in. So that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, catch this, underline it, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he acquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Catch this, underline it. God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who are with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. We'll stop there. Genesis 43. See, beloved, hopefully you caught those markers and you underlined them down. But as we said, God initiates reconciliation. We're jumping into the middle of a story. If you've been with us, you've followed along. But remember, they're in the middle of a, a famine. They had seven years of plenty. Joseph was promoted to uh, the prime minister of Egypt. And through those seven years of plenty, they stored it up. And now they're in the first few years of seven years of incredible famine. Joseph and his brother, or Joseph's brothers have come once, got food to uh, to feed themselves. They've eaten through that grain. And now where we picked up here is they are back in need of more grain and have to make the journey back to Egypt for this. And what we see here at the very beginning, the first 14 verses is this, God initiates reconciliation by showing mercy. By showing mercy. We see this in the family. So let's look a little bit closer and we'll see the Lord's hand in it all. Remember, as we are working through these passages, this is a narrative, these are stories, but what we have to do as good Bible students, as people reading uh, God's word who want to know what it means and what it means accurately, not ripping things out of context, is we should look for these indicators of where the Lord or God is mentioned. 
That's why it's important to underline those things. And so what do we see here in these first 14 verses? God showing mercy. The family, again, has eaten through the grain on the first trip, and now they find themselves in a pickle. They're really hungry, but Joseph made it clear on the first trip the stipulations. If you are going to come back, who needs to come back with them? Benjamin, who's Joseph's full brother. They share the same mom. Remember, Jacob has multiple wives and many sons and daughters, but Joseph and Benjamin were uh, his favorite sons from his favorite wife, and so they share this affinity, and this dad, Jacob here, has this favoritism for these boys. Joseph knows that. They don't know that Joseph is the ruler, remember, but he says, if they don't bring Benjamin, then you're not getting any more grain. And Simeon, one of the brothers from the first trip, will not get released from prison. So remember, Joseph, last, in the last chapter, he took Simeon and held him in prison while the brothers are away. So they all go back. They're eating their grain, living back in the land of Canaan while their brother Simeon is in prison. Well, it stinks to be him, right? But now they're in the, find themselves in a pickle. They're hungry again. And so they now need to make this decision. And what's important for us to note here is which brother now is assuming leadership of the family? Who begins to speak in verse 3? It's Judah. Judah is assuming leadership, and he's going to now rise to prominence in our story, and not just 43, but from here on out. Judah is assuming leadership among the brothers. Remember, last, if you just look back in 42, at the very end, the firstborn brother, Reuben, he tried to plead with dad and made an offer. He said, I'll give my two sons as a pledge, and that offer was rejected. But now Judah here. He's the spokesperson. He's the one negotiating with dad. And does he pledge his sons in return for Benjamin as a, as a pledge that this man will come back? No, what does he pledge? His own life. He pledges his own life. He says, it'll be, uh, it's on me. I will take Benjamin. He is on me. I will make sure his safe return. I will go back. I will get the grain. I will accomplish the mission uh, that you set me on, Father. And I will, with my own life, pledge my life to make sure that he and the brothers come back so that you, our families, and our little ones, did you catch that? Our little ones might be saved. They might eat and not die. Do you hear the whispers of the atonement in that? The atonement, the Father sending Christ, who'd be a sacrifice, who'd go back, who had a great mercy. Do you see the whispers there? Do you see it in the story? Do you see the theme of Christ laying down his own life for the sake of others? Judah says, I will do this. And there's something else that is subtle but very significant in this chapter. What is the dad's name that is being used multiple times? It's not Jacob, his birth name, but what? Israel, which was his covenant name, the name that God gave him. And this is very important. It's not Jacob. It's Israel, his covenant name, which was given to him first back in chapter 32. Go back just in your scriptures here. Turn it over. God loves to hear the music of pages of his Bible turning or the scrolling up, if you will, if you're on a digital Bible. It's worship to him as God's people get into God's word. Go back to Genesis 32. This is the passage where Jacob wrestles with God. 
Maybe you're wondering, what is happening here? But this is where I believe Jacob was uh, converted. He's wrestling with God. In verse 28 of chapter 32, God says this, and he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And so it's this very interesting scene. We don't have time to go all into it, but God gives him this new name here, and then it is made official a few chapters later in 35. Where in an awesome scene here, 3510, just flip over a few pages there, you'll see it. God has appeared to Jacob again, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body The land that I gave to Abram and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Why is that significant? It's significant because at that place, God was officially extending the promise, extending the covenant now to Jacob. What originated with Abraham and was then given to Abram's son, Isaac, not to Ishmael, and then from Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob, the covenant was now being passed through Jacob's family line. And as a symbol of that, as a sign of that, he changes his name. He changed Abram's name to Abraham. And here in the same way, he is changing Jacob's name uh, to Israel. And so from chapter 35 to where we are now in 43, those names have kind of bounced back and forth. But what is key for us here is because it is, multi, uh, it is repeated multiple times. You following with me still? You follow? Because it was repeated multiple times, there's something significant here. God is up to, uh, up to something. And Moses, as the writer of this book, is pointing us to something greater. Not just the family dynamics, not just the reconciliation, not just the, the famine that is existing and the problems that are in the family. He is using that as an alert to say something significant, something greater is going on here, something more eternal, something very important. God is going to show them mercy. And as his name is being used in verse 11 here, their father Israel said to them, he gives them some instructions. He says, take the best gifts, double the money, and go. He says, take the, take, the, take the best gifts, look around here, take it and go. And he trusts the mercy of God, and he sends them out. But beloved, as we are on this theme of reconciliation, that restoration of a relationship that was broken, that cannot happen apart from mercy. And mercy defined is simply this. It's withholding punishment or consequences when they are deserved. It's withholding punishment or consequences when they are deserved. Police show us mercy when they pull us over and just give us a warning. That's mercy. Especially if we're speeding or whatever. None of us speed at anything, right? Teachers, they show mercy when they throw out your lowest test score. Thank you, past teachers that have done that. Your boss shows you mercy when he or she does not write you up for being late. When there should be consequences, there should be a doc, maybe even it's a habitual thing, they show mercy. But aren't we a lot alike 
Israel and his sons here when it comes to needing mercy, when it comes to uh, uh, we've offended somebody, we've offended the Lord. We're a lot like this. We, 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 we take gifts to influence the other person as if it's recompense. It's like, you know, here's our, here's our little fruit basket. That's what, that's what Israel's doing. He's like, hey, take some of the best gifts. He's like, Here, uh, here's some, some fruit. That's a cucumber that's turning yellow. Here's a tomato. Here's some oranges. Take some fruit. He says, take some gum. You know, here's some nuts and some spices. Here, oh, even some myrrh. Do you know myrrh's like a real thing? All the essential oils, you know, they're like coming back like with the gifts that were given Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They've got it in like oil so you can like get it do all this stuff. And here, even some Cholula just to sweeten the deal a little bit <laughs> or spice it up rather, I guess. But we take our gifts and we like throw our watch in like, oh, we got to double the money. I own 20 bucks. Well, here, I'll double it. I got 20 and there's another one and that's more than double. I'll double it. And we're like, go to like influence. And we say, here you go. Here, here, here's my fruit basket. And sometimes we approach the Lord like this, right? And we try to give him our, our fruit basket. We, we lay it here. Here's all the good things that I have for you, all the, all the first fruits, all the stuff that I've done to try to influence him, to try to, 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 try to sweeten up the deal. Oh God, beloved, what do, we, what do we rely upon? You know, our, our fruit baskets, maybe it's not really fruit. Maybe it's promises. God, next time I'll do better. I won't do that next time. I won't think those thoughts. I, I'm not going to do it. I, I'll, I'll tithe more. I won't, I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to try my best next time. We offer these like fruit basket promises. But beloved, here's the thing. Put down your gifts. Our attempts don't convince God. They're never enough anyway. We just come to the Lord when we have offended him. If we are apart from him, we just come humbly in need of mercy. We're just saying, God Almighty, have mercy on me. And God initiated that with us, being rich in mercy. The same is true horizontally. That's how we approach the Lord as we are needing to be reconciled. Maybe there's a strained relationship in, in your marriage with a, a, a child, with a coworker. We, we don't necessarily need to come with gifts. We just ask for mercy. We withhold a punishment. We grant mercy to those who seek it. God initiated, God originated reconciliation through mercy. That's how it happens both vertically and horizontally. But the story doesn't just end there. That's how he sends them out. He sends them out and he says, God, may God Almighty have mercy on you. Verse 14, don't miss that. Don't miss that. That's the most important thing beyond the fruit baskets. But we have nothing to offer. And that's why God initiates reconciliation by also paying our debt. By paying our debt. Do you see, this is God, uh, or rather Israel sends his sons with this, with this hope, with this, may God grant you mercy before the man. That's Joseph. And so in verse 15 then, they take their fruit basket, they take the cash, and they take the prisoner, or Benjamin. He's not really a prisoner, and they journey to Egypt. In verse uh, 16 then, Joseph sees Benjamin and he instructs his steward, or who's really his assistant, who then receives them. And we see that the brothers are afraid. They plead their case to the steward. You know, because just imagine what's happening here. Now, the brothers, they're, they're all kinds of confused. They don't know that it's Joseph who's their brother. But they have this 20-year-old guilt that's just kind of weighing upon them. 
And so they, they take this, and now Joseph sees them, and then he disappears, and now his assistant is coming forward. And so look, look at what they're doing. It says that they're afraid, verse 18, and they go to the steward, and they're just like pleading their case. Like they have this, this need to like clear up the confusion about the first trip. Like, hey, you know, we did this. We came back with the money, and we don't really know what's happening, but you're really powerful, and you could strike sound, but we're in a p- position that we really need food, so we're pretty desperate, so uh, just like, and you almost get the sense that here are 10 grown men that can't, they're all tongue-tied, and they're trying to plead their case. They lay it all out, and verse 23 is so interesting for us. The steward, or the assistant, he replies with this beginning. He says, peace to you, shalom. It's shalom. It's almost like he's laughing it off. He's like, chill out, dudes. Like, I'm looking at the books right here. You're all paid up. What are, you're all good. Like, what? What, what, are you, what are you all in a tizzy about? Why are you all confused? Why are you all worried here? They're like, chill out. But more seriously, his response is, is important. Because this is, remember, an Egyptian servant. Not a follower of God. Not a Hebrew somebody that's probably been influenced by Joseph. But his response is so interesting because he gives the Hebrew response, shalom. And who does he give credit for paying off their debt? Verse 23, your God. He's saying your God and the God of your father which is so important because who is the God of Genesis? Who is he referred to often throughout the scriptures? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a familial thing. He's saying, this God, your God, has paid your debt. And that alerts us again. Ding, ding, ding. Another alert for us, the reader. Simeon has released them and they are prepared for lunch with Joseph. Do You see what happened here? Do you see what's happening in this story? Bigger than the family uh, problems, bigger than the mess, bigger than the famine, bigger than the debt. They had a debt that somebody else has paid. And it would be like a situation in, in our own life. That you have a mortgage payment and you were late on it and you had uh, kids were sick, you didn't quite make it, the check got off late and, and uh, you're really worried about it and then uh, you, you mail it off super late and then the next week you find the check returned back to you in your mailbox and so you call the, the lender and the assistant says, what are, you, what are you talking about? I received your payment. God has provided for you. Where did it come from? Well, you don't know. It comes from the Lord. Beloved, just as reconciliation can't happen apart from mercy, reconciliation requires that the debt for the offense be paid. This this is just something even to clear up your mind. Even when you forgive somebody, when you're reconciled, when mercy is extended, that doesn't necessarily mean that consequences are totally removed. Consequences still have to be paid. The beautiful beautiful thing is, is that we don't pay for it in this, somebody else paid for it, just as the Lord pays for it. We know this, but yeah, we bring our fruit baskets. Say, here, here, I'm, I, I need to pay something. Jesus says, I don't need your fruit. 
I don't need your fruit. I've covered it. I've paid for it with my own life. Because he is rich in mercy, he paid out the debt and we can set down our fruit baskets and live a life with a full account before the Lord. Amen? Amen. Reconciliation. God initiates this and he pays off our debt vertically. More on this next week. 44 is going to make this even more beautiful for us. Before the time being, here's the, here's the thing. Like That happens vertically. Because we have a full account, we can then extend that horizontally. Husbands, when we hurt our wives, you know, like taking them flowers, you know, and take Aaron flowers, and it's a nice gesture. She might even like it. But does that actually pay the, uh, the, the debt that I have for offending her? No, it's a nice gesture, but it isn't the payment. We confess our sin. We humble ourselves. We make the sacrifice to repair the situation. Ephesians 5 likens the love of a husband as Christ's love for the church. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave up himself for her. He paid the debt. He laid it down. He lived a life of sacrifice. And that is the call for us. The payment is made through the sacrifice. God initiated our reconciliation by planning long ago, long ago to pay the debt that is whispered about in this passage. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sack. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? This is the essence of the gospel. But it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop here. It doesn't just pay the debt and somehow like bring our account back to zero. He then takes it a step further and God initiates reconciliation last by showering us with grace. By showering us with grace. He didn't just bring it to zero. He's now given us unlimited resources. But look where our story continues on here. They are pleading their case. The Egyptian jailer, the Egyptian steward gives the credit to the Lord. They go on, they prepare themselves. And in verse 26, Joseph comes home. It's now lunchtime, it's noon. And so what do the brothers do? They get their fruit basket, they bring it, they plead their case, they bow down. Again, another picture back to the dreams from chapter 37. And what does Joseph, or who does Joseph rather, ask about right away? Verse 27, who does he ask about? He asks about them, and then he asks about their father. The father, this is pretty, you know, this is like the second most powerful person in the world, and he's asking about dad? Like, isn't that like a little like, hey, we're right here before you. Why, why are you even interested in our personal life? It's a little confusing, and it throws them off. Joseph is asking about this guy, this dad, this man that he has not seen for almost 20 years. The last time he saw him, remember, was in 37 when his dad sent him out into the field to look for his brothers. That's the last time they laid eyes on one another. How has he aged? What has happened these last 20 years? And the same thing here. Then he asks about them, their brothers, and then he lifts up his eyes. Verse 29, and who does he see? His brother Benjamin, his mother's son. This is the first time in 20 years. Benjamin was just a kid, and now he's just a man. 
or now he is a man. He was just a kid, now he's a man. And what does he say to him? What does he say to him? Verse 29 at the end. God be gracious to you, my son. There's our alerts again. Ding, ding, ding. God's name. God be gracious to you. It's our signifier here. He's so overcome with emotion, he has to excuse himself. God has surely been gracious to Joseph that he would see his brother again. Do you imagine this? Grace defined as simply receiving a gift or kindness that you didn't deserve. Mercy is withholding punishment or consequence that you did deserve. Grace is the opposite. Grace is actually receiving a gift or receiving kindness that you did not deserve. Seeing Benjamin is such a gift that Joseph cannot contain it. He's overcome with emotion. So you haven't seen him in so long. I mean, we see these things, maybe you see them on Facebook, maybe you've been to like a baseball game or something when they do those really special things and it's like the kid's birthday and his dad who's been deployed on military service for a year or whatever comes home on his birthday and surprises him and they put it on the jumbotron and people are crying and kissing, all that stuff. It's the same kind of dynamic here except it's not been a year, it's been 20 years. Totally unexpected that he might ever see him. You think Joseph had great hope when he sent him off and said, hey, don't come back here unless you bring Benjamin? I'm guessing he did not have a lot of hope. His case, Joseph here, he has to contain himself. His brothers don't know, and then they move to this meal. This meal that isn't really just like some nice, feel-good Hallmark movie family reunion, right? Then he reveals himself, and then they get around a big old table of food and stuff. But no, it's they sit and eat, but they're segregated. Joseph, by himself... There's some elitism happening here. There's racism happening here. The bros are by themselves. The servants are sitting somewhere else. But Joseph feeds them and he showers Benjamin with graces, mountains of food, five times the amount of food. You know what's really interesting here? Benjamin had just cause. He had the just cause. He had the ability. He had the authority And some might even say he had the responsibility to punish these brothers for what they did. He could have done it. Instead, he showed mercy. They betrayed him. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. They even faked his death and told a lie to their dad. And instead, he paid their debt and he showered them with grace through this expression of hospitality. See, those who trust the sovereignty of God, those who see God's hand, who are living in his promise in light of something bigger than just our problems can leave justice in the hands of God. God will repay in his own time and in his own way, won't he? He will. This is what Romans 12 teaches us. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In that same section of scripture, he talks about being hospitable, of living in harmony all as a means of expressing genuine love 
for one another, all under the banner of God's sovereign work in our life. We can shower those with grace. Even when we've been offended in the most evil way, reconciliation is still possible. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That even when we've been offended, reconciliation is possible because the greatest offense, our sin against holy God, was paid for, was shown mercy towards, was then showered with grace. We who did not deserve it have benefited from God. Turn over to Ephesians 2. I want you to see this as we bring this to a close here. Got a little bit to go. But I want you to see Ephesians 2. It's in the New Testament. It's a small little letter. You can just listen if you want. But Ephesians 2 paints a really ugly picture of us in the first three verses. He's saying this is true of all humanity. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Inside and out, we were messed up with no hope. That's an ugly picture of humanity. Verse 4 begins with the two greatest words in the Christian life. Your faith, your eternity, hang on these two words. But God. Those should be the two most precious words to you in your faith that you could ever hear. Because we know verses 1 to 3 are true of us. We were without hope, but God intervened. But God did something about the impossible situation. But God solved the problem, but God fixed the mess. Why? Look how verse 4 goes. Being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. That's reconciliation. That's the gospel, beloved. This is what our faith is in. Is yours? Or are you trusting in your fruit basket? Saying, well, here's, I'm, I work for you. I'll try. I'm here. here's, my, here's my fruit basket. I'll pay you double. Or is it simply in Christ? Trusting on his mercy, that he's paid the debt, that he has showered us with grace. Beloved, that's our hope. That's the gospel hope that you know it. But see, we constantly need this reminder. 
That's what's so great about the Old Testament, great about stories like this, as we see the whispers of these great truths. It's not just uh, giving us hope for messed up family situations. It's pointing us to something much bigger. It's pointing us vertical to that vertical reconciliation that happens and continues to happen, but then infiltrates and, and influences our horizontal reconciliation. Why? Why? Because sin remains and it destroys relationships. We've seen that happening in this family, and it's still actually happening. They need reconciliation. The chapter ends with segregation. The chapter ends with racism and elitism. Just in how they are seated, different ethnicities apart from one another, different people seated by rank. These things are not just new American problems. These are sin problems, and they're as ancient as the curse. This story here happening 2,000 or so years before Jesus, and it is still around now 2,000 years later. And the only way to reconcile even these problems in our nation, in our city, and in our, our own church is that the only way to do it is through the gospel. By showing mercy, paying debt by trusting in Christ, and we won't have unified multi-ethnic churches and cities until we have multi-ethnic dinner tables and play dates and work crews. Where we lay down our own pride, we lay down our, our own preferences, where we just come to learn and to love and to lay down our life. Praise God that he initiated that reconciliation with us that we might demonstrate the gospel and extend mercy and grace to one another. That happens in systemic things. It happens in your own home. God is orchestrating all the details of our life. That's something that we have seen all throughout Joseph. And he's doing so to display the gospel in your life, in your marriage. As you show mercy to your kids, it's a gospel opportunity. As you reconcile with your spouse, gospel opportunity, putting it on display. As you shower grace on your coworker, it's a gospel opportunity. As you forgive someone that has hurt you deeply even 20 years ago, gospel opportunity. Something much bigger, more eternal is taking place beyond the pain, beyond the emotion, beyond the awkwardness, beyond the effort that it takes. And that gives our life purpose and God glory. That's the gospel, beloved. That's what's happening on a grand scale here. This is God being faithful to his promise, teaching us things. God is bigger and he is so worthy of our praise. Is he not?